Hey there, welcome to Talk Alchemy. I'm your host, Tyler, and here we are again. This is episode two, guys. It's wonderful to have you guys here listening. Uh, so, you know, wacky things have been happening in the world. Um, how, I hope everybody's staying safe out there. I hope everybody's doing good. Just been sitting here like everyone else, just watching everything unfold. Or we're having those second wave of coronavirus upticks here in the U.S. Florida's doing pretty bad. Uh, I'm in New York City. Thankfully, it seems like we've flattened that curve right now and I mean, slowly you hear things that it's coming back here and there, but some states seem to be doing really bad, like Texas and uh, Arizona, I'm hearing, so uh, California as well. So anybody who's in any place that's affected, I hope you guys are really staying safe. Be smart. Stay well-informed. Um, wash those hands. Always wash those hands, guys. Come on. I would hate to hear that any of you are getting sick or anything like that. So just, you know, be smart. Take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Take your vitamins, all that stuff. Yeah, I, you know, just I wanted to talk to you guys today. I was like... Just sitting back, looking at the state of everything, and, you know, just like you guys, I don't know what the heck is going on. I don't pretend to truly understand what state of the world that we're in or anything like that. But, you know, it's just been so weird to watch everything devolve into these uh, this nonsense. I mean, I said it last time in the introduction that, you know, the world has lost its sense-making in so many different ways. I mean, I, I honestly don't even really pay that much attention to the media anymore. I mean... I hear it here and there. I'll see it on Twitter. I'll see snips here and there on YouTube. Or um, sometimes when I listen to podcasts, I'll also hear them talking politically. That's mostly where I get a lot of my news is on podcasts. Um, they break it down for me. Um, sometimes I'll watch things like The Hill and uh, podcasts like that to keep me a little bit informed. Uh, the Weinsteins, of course, have some great things to say about the current moment and everything. Um, yeah, there's but there's a lot going on, especially here in the U.S. Coronavirus protest uh so a lot of social change a lot of a lot of change a lot of changes going on it's an election year which is also crazy i still now kanye west is gonna start to uh, run for president which is pretty weird so uh yeah it just seems like it's all finally unfolding and becoming ridiculous just completely ridiculous if the world wasn't ridiculous before it's definitely become ridiculous now so, uh, you know, what I really wanted to talk to you guys about today was the state of how ridiculous everything is getting. And uh, I had some stuff on my mind, actually, um, in reference to everything. So, you know, like I told you guys, I also listen a lot to Terrence McKenna. Um, I've listened to a lot of his lectures and talks that he's had over the years. And lately I've been focusing on an area of study that he was focused on, which is really an idea that came from him that he kind of perpetuated. So there's this idea that Terrence McKenna had. Let me introduce it to you. It's one of the most interesting ideas I have ever heard in my life. It's called the transcendental object at the end of time. And if you don't know what this is, I'll try to unpack and explain it here. But there's also a lot of great content on YouTube. If you just type that in the transcendental object at the end of time, there's actually a movie uh, that somebody had made with a bunch of clips of McKenna's talks where he went into this this thing and he it kind of breaks down his whole kind of worldview and this whole cosmology that he had put forth. So, oh, if anybody doesn't know who Terence McKenna is, by the way, Terence McKenna was a 20th century philosopher and ethnobotanist. He's well known for writing the the Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide. Uh, it's kind of it was kind of actually the first manual that had come out um, telling people 
a breakdown of actually how to cultivate magic mushrooms. He had also um, went down to the Amazon and he had some really interesting experiences with psychedelics, ayahuasca. He went down there to look for uh, yahe or ayahuasca from the tribes of the Amazon. So he actually went there and um, he did find ayahuasca, but then he was more interested, it seemed, in the experience of psilocybin and brought that back and kind of made it a fixture in Western culture. I, I mean, you could really credit McKenna with a lot when it comes to psychedelic thinking. Um, you know, psychedelic thinking after the 60s was very, very frowned upon. You know, people were really scared of psychedelics. The whole general consensus was that psychedelics were bad. They weren't something to be messed with. Anybody who did mess with them was obviously, you know, oh my gosh, you're destroying your brain. You're getting addicted, all this stuff. And I mean, most of it has been completely untrue. Psychedelics are powerful, powerful medicinal tools. You can use them to expand your consciousness, um, get outside of yourself, really explore who you are and after a while of doing it, you begin to realize you can interface with the universe as a whole and you can inter have a dialogue with the cosmos based on these experiences by watching your mind and the thoughts that arise. And those thoughts will introduce you to ways of thinking about yourself, about your place in the universe that are pretty far out, pretty groovy stuff. I mean, it's really incredible to see the way that psychedelics play a part in your mind. I mean, I've my, my personal psychedelic experiences have been eye-opening, incredible, incredible experiences. I mean, some of them have been mystical. Some of them have completely changed my worldview, got me outside of myself to think differently. I really don't know of any more powerful tools except, wow, I mean, you know, hum human love is a pretty great tool. I think that, you know, some of the bonds we share, something like the bond between a mother and a child or something like that or pretty psychedelic in their own right and kind of fall into this area of tools that you can use to work on yourself. But as far as anything that will actually convey what's actually uh, going on with your mind, how your mind actually works, how you perceive things, unearthing patterns in your mind, traumas that have been there, and then, you know, going over those things and actually being able to overcome them. I think they're really helpful tools when they're used safe and responsibly with the right set and setting. Amazing, just amazing tools. I can't say that anything would work for you if you tried them. I mean, I, I truly believe that they would. But yeah, just do your own exploration. Do do some research on it. Uh, really interesting topic. If you really want to just shatter reality and break out of any paradigm that you thought was something that was concrete, a good you know psilocybin experience, LSD experience, and um, DMT above all would be you know something to really shake up what you think reality is really about. So, uh, yeah, talking again about McKenna, uh, Terrence McKenna, you know, he was also an author. He wrote tons and tons of books. You can go find his material online. Uh, he just wrote all about his experiences with psychedelics. He wrote a couple of books that were more on the ethno-botanical side, pharmacology side of things, explaining um, these, these experiences in terms of how shamanically they were used. He unearthed the whole um, shamanic use of these things and how what they actually meant to their indigenous cultures. Uh, then he wrote some a lot of stuff about the actual um, mechanisms that your brain uses and the pathways that are used, the neurology behind a lot of this, the pharmacology. So, you know, he was such a great wealth of information for these things. And throughout the... The, I believe he started talking in the 80s, I want to say. I believe it was in the 80s. He went to go visit the Amazon 
in the 70s. And then after that point, he came back, had his experiences. And then in, I believe, the early 80s, he began speaking publicly about those experiences. But, you know, to me, I think, you know, there's a bunch of people who are great at speaking on the pharmacology, the real hardline science of the psychedelic experience and what that all means. His brother, actually, Dennis McKenna, who had a lot of these experiences with him, also traveled to the Amazon with him when I believe he was 19 and Terrence was, uh, I think, 23 at that time. Uh, Dennis McKenna actually went on to become a biochemist and pharmacologist, um, and he still does work to this day studying these compounds. Uh, unfortunately, Terrence passed in the year 2000, and I really think it was such a great loss because the real beauty of Terrence McKenna was that he had a way about speaking of the psychedelic experience and then connecting it with many, many different areas of reality. That was actually what was so interesting about Terrence McKenna is that he was able to find the connective tissue between things like philosophy, theology, religion, science economics, modernism, all this kind of stuff, art. He was an art historian as well. He studied that. Um, he studied um, Tibetan and Buddhist art for a really long time. So he kind of had this great ability to speak on these things and merge them with other areas that you would never think about. I mean, it's it's funny. I've heard certain talks with him where he's explaining things like nanotechnology and virtual reality and, and uh, artificial intelligence and how they're going to interface with us in the future and how all the possible landscapes uh, that can occur with our intercession with things like technology and psychedelics and shamanic dream time and all this sort of stuff. So that was really his most powerful asset was his words, his way that he used language. He was able to deconstruct things so beautifully and make you, it's like when he spoke, you may not have understood every single word he was saying because he was just so, he was he was a wordsmith with English. He knew so much about the English language. He was so well read, such a, he was such a bright person and he was able to tell everything like it was narrative, like it was some type of story that he was telling you and yet he's talking to you about like, pharmacology and you're sitting there just totally immersed in what he's saying because he's saying it so elegantly poetically and beautifully really go take a listen to him he's a really incredible person to listen to he opened my mind a lot to new possibilities and one thing i really loved about mckenna also was that he was the type of person who never resigned himself to the belief he actually self-describes as a person who never resigns himself to any belief so you know he plays with ideas in certain talks and it's not like he ever says like this is actually what's going on even what i want to talk to you here about today this uh transcendental object at the end of time it's not like mckenna actually said uh religiously oh this is gonna be this is actually what's happening there is this transcendental object at the end of time and this thing you know well, I'll get into what he actually thought it was, but any of his ideas, it's more like he was having thoughts and pondering his own mind and just saying, hmm, that's interesting. That's an interesting thought. How does it work? Can I play with it? Does it fit well with reality? And it's he was able to, I think, grasp deeper insights about reality because he allowed his mind to stray from just hard empirical science and say, how can I think about science in a philosophical way? You know, how can I uh, think about futurism? and things like this and just just play with them but never believe any of it it's funny the there's an author who has a book called high weirdness uh, this guy eric davis who i was listening to recently speak about terence mckenna and uh 
Will, uh, Philip K. Dick and also Robert Anton Wilson. And he described these people from that time period who were having these visionary experiences as radical agnostics. People who were able to digest the psychedelic experience and these visionary dreamlike experiences and synchronicities that were occurring to them. As and But what was great is that the, he explains how these people would ponder these things, let them spin it, spin it in their minds, but then let go of them. And I'll forever say, okay, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Never actually saying, oh, I've discovered the truth. They, These were the type of people, like McKenna especially was the type of person that he didn't think the truth was something that was rationally apprehendable in, the, in most cases. He thought the truth was this multidimensional thing that it was hard to know what the real truth was that none of us could really truly hold on to bedrock truth because reality is such a slippery object. You know, when Eric Davis called them radical agnostics, he's, um, he's, he would say that this is a person who simply spins these ideas in their head but then says, hmm, I see that reality is more than what it is, so I'm radically agnostic about reality. I don't say that it's hard materialism, but I can't say that, you know, the shamanic way of looking at things, the psychedelic way of looking at things is not true in the same right it, it's just the belief like i said not resigning yourself to a belief the, the the commitment to not resign yourself to belief because you you have the good humor the good insight and understanding to say i don't truly understand what this thing is but i'm just gonna sit here and say maybe maybe this maybe that maybe not this maybe not that so uh yeah, let's uh, unpack this idea now. The transcendental object at the end of time. isn't that, that's, a, that's a great name, isn't it? I mean, just right there. In so many of McKenna's ideas, he just, like I said, he was such a poet that, you know, anything he said just sound profound. So, you know, Terence would think about the psychedelic experience. And when he would have his visions, he sort of started to formulate the theory that human history was being caused by the presence of a hyperdimensional object forward in time. So he had this whole idea that time seemed to be accelerating novelty, that the universe was this beauty and art creating engine. And what was really occurring in the universe was a fight between two constants, which were novelty or, uh, you know, new complexity in the universe arising and habits habits and stagnation so he surmised that what was really going on that if when you looked at let's say history on this planet history on in the local universe that the presence of human beings and biology and biochemistry on the planet seemed to be a process that was pushing itself forward faster than any other process before it so you know you had the big bang you had the you know, elements condensing, stars forming, planets forming around those stars, you know, nebulas giving birth to stars after that. And then there was, you know, cl clusters arising of these objects. And as time went on, you know, you got planets like the Earth. And then if you take the Earth, for example, there's now a process going on the Earth in the form of chemistry and then biochemistry that erupts into the plant and animal kingdom, this whole phylogeny of forms that arises as life and life seems to be this thing which is always knitting itself together more complexly but at faster and faster rates so you get from you know single-celled organisms and 
small organisms like that, one one and two dimensional organisms that don't have much control over their environment. These things use natural selection and the institutions of evolution like um, adaptation and all of these great traits and this gene matching and gene combination and switching and um, you know, just adaptation through time to then create more interesting forms, forms that have more dimensionality or the or what McKenna would call the conquest of dimensionality was the telos of life on the planet. So, you know, from the single-celled organisms to multicellular organisms to eventually, you know, algae and then plants. And then, you know, plants are these organisms that don't really move. They don't really um, do very much. They stay stationary in one place. But then... As time moves on, as this procession goes on, you start to get the animal kingdom, which has more conquest of each dimension. It can move around in its environment and, you know, um, have more conquest over that. You know, a plant just kind of sits there, a tree sits there for its entire lifetime. Doesn't I mean, sure, it can grow out and things like that, and its root systems can go all over the place. It can become a part of the interconnection of the forest. But, uh, you know, basically a plant just kind of sits there while, you know, birds, uh, reptiles fish, all these mammals, everything, us, we can move around, we can um, repurpose our environment. Uh, As animals, you know, we build nests, we build hives, we build everything from, you know, uh, animal constructions to things as large as cities and, you know, human dwellings that are these um, reconstructions of the environment to meet our needs. So, you know, it's really interesting because if you really see what's been happening on this planet, it seems that as life gets more complex, things start to then happen quicker. That the habits that the universe, or um, in this case life, let's say, is working with, begin to become much quicker. So that once you reach human beings, there's so much novelty occurring that you're at the point from, you know, it doesn't take as long to, it doesn't take millions of years for new processes to arise or new ways of doing things. So, you know, you go from, agriculture to villages to then you know small cities to then mid cities large cities and then eventually you have you know new york city shanghai hong kong london paris all these places and uh even with our biology it's interesting because it took so long for nature to work out how to get the human form i mean it took you know things like the fall of the dinosaurs and you know the rising of mammals into a new domain because of these uh mass extinction events to then eventually you know peter on and evolutionarily then you get us as primates and and then two million years is this massive explosion in brain size. And from, you know, just being on the plains of Africa, kind of just being, uh, you know, another primate species, eventually, you know, uh, Homo sapiens sapien arises and in a very short amount of time becomes this being that then starts to utilize language, develops the skill of language. And from there, it's just a huge, huge curve from you know, hanging out in the jungles of Africa one moment to then, you know, doing stock markets and space flight and creating the internet and all these things. And it happens so quickly. And even if you look at today, you can see what's happening in just what in the last couple of centuries where technology has gotten to the point that um, I guess you can say it's almost like a, a like almost Moore's law is occurring where it's like our capacity for technology just continues to get greater. I mean, I'm, I'm using Moore's law as an analogy here, um, even though that's, you know, in computer science. But, you know, from the steam engine to, you know, now having self-driving cars and, and all of this stuff, it seems as though that things are concressing in a way where once a solution 
to the problem of being through technology is met. It just begins to accelerate at faster and faster and faster rates. And now going back to Terence's idea of the transcendental object and the end of time, he believed that it was literally the presence of some type of almost indescribable object that lied far in the future. That um, his cosmology, I don't think he seen time in a very linear way. He saw that time like affected itself forward and backward, I would say, because um, he had this whole theory called the time wave or also called time wave zero. Now, Time Wave Zero was kind of the hallmark of Terence's ideas in a sense also. It was kind of this uh, mathematical theory of time that he had created, he came up with. Um, it was actually really interesting. I don't, I personally don't fully agree with the implications that he came down to with the Time Wave, but I'll briefly explain it here. So Terence, um, under the influence of psychedelics, believed that psychedelics were giving him insights into the dynamics of what's called the I Ching. Now, the I Ching is a form of Chinese mysticism and divination. It's kind of a way of looking at time. Um, it's a mathematical notation, actually, that is a description of the time of time based on human observation. So it basically is uh, what the I Ching tries to surmise is that it's not these large mathematical ideas that are going to give you the perfect definition of time or large instruments or anything like that. That time could be understood by the observation of organism, the observation of one's life. And this is kind of what Terence um, went into, that he began to believe that it was our experience that was truly necessary to understanding a description of time, a truer description of time than what our mathematics was showing us. Terence became fixated on what's called the King Wan sequence. And what was presented to him under psychedelics was the question of was it truly a sequence? And what he did was he looked in the first order of difference between the hexagrams. So from the first hexagram to the second hexagram, they're made up of six lines. And the first one is made up of solid lines. And the next hexagram is made up of broken lines. And this continues on through 64 hexagrams. So he looked at what's called the first order of difference. And, you know, the, the first order of difference between those two, two lines is going to be six because they're different in six areas. So what's interesting, as he looked deeper into the I Ching, he began to come to the conclusion that after studying the I Ching deeply, that it seemed like there was some sort of mathematical artificiality, like artificial construction were inside of the I Ching that uh, would give you certain mathematical conservations and results. And he describes discovering a fractal algorithm or a wave. Um, and he, would, he actually plotted this and it looked kind of like a stock market graph. But what it does is that instead of showing something like stocks, it shows the ebb and flow of time and this struggle between habit and novelty. And when this was properly plotted, he felt as though he had discovered a theory of history and a theory of future time so that you could literally mathematically understand the ebb and flow of time based on the 64 hexagrams that were presented in the observations and the fractal algorithm existing within the I Ching. That the I Ching was in some sense correct or that it revealed something that was actually true about time. Now, Terence didn't know if he actually had hit bedrock with what time truly was, if it was the full complete theory, but he felt like it was true that through observation 
of time understanding the I Ching, you could get almost 64 variations or species of time that affected human history and really the history of the cosmos. So after this, he began to say that if novelty and habit were constantly at battle with each other, always struggling to best one another in the universe, that the ebb and flow of this was defined by 64 variations within time. Going as far to say that even things like the rise and fall of empires, the most dynamic centuries that our planet had befall things like the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, um, when wars were fought, when famines occurred, that these things were kind of all affected by time as a real object, almost as though time was something as real as radiation or electricity. It was a real object, not just something you could think about in your mind as um, a system of causalities or the distance between two events. So basically everything from the inception of our planet, the birth of the cosmos, all the way to the slow trek of evolution and the project of being coming out of the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, uh, biochemistry and chemistry could all be understood with this understanding of time, that it was all influenced by this structure of time. So he also said that what was happening was that this was occurring due to the great attractor or the transcendental object at the end of time. So here's the part of the theory that I don't totally agree with. Um, I think it's it's definitely a very interesting theory, but I think it kind of went wrong here. Um, so Terence would plotted this graph out and made this whole image of time with the ebb and flow of uh, based on the fractal algorithm in the I Ching, and then it came to an endpoint. Um, I believe he had a program written where it would plot the correct um, structure mathematically on a graph on a piece of software. And the software uh, came to the conclusion that there was an endpoint to this transition phase and that the endpoint was at 2012. Terence would say that this is when the transcendental object, the hyperdimensional object that was influencing its, its, its image backward into time and infecting the history that preceding it with the images of its unconscious unfoldment, that this is when this thing would become manifest, when it would it would completely change everything and transform everything on the planet or locally or, you know, I'm, it, I don't think he ever got down to whether it was going to be a local phenomenon or a, or a grand cosmic phenomenon. Um, I think more he leaned that it was a local phenomenon, but that all of this was going to come to a head. This object would become fully realized and manifest in our lives and we would see the unfolding of this object. Now, what that means, he always said, I have no idea what that truly means. Um, the process is too complex to look around the corner and say you can truly get a picture of what the transcendental object truly is. It's the nature of it because it's a hyperdimensional, multidimensional object. It's something that could never be truly, I think, understood by the way we see reality or we see the world. But basically, I think it would just restructure reality. And he also said that this there was an interesting thing within the narrative of most of our religions and most of what culture was saying, like how there was this doomsday kind of built into culture and, and into most religious thinking and theology. Why was it that so many religions had this idea of this transcendence that would come when God would become tran- tangential to history? He would become a real object and then... You know, the Christian myth has things like, you know, rapture and all that kind of stuff. He didn't think that these things were actually, 
going to happen in the way that the religious text said. But he thought that because we were connected to the collective unconscious, because the transcendental object was influencing us and everything on the planet, that through our narrative, through the way we told the story of our reality, that the motifs of this object would become manifest. So one of the reasons why there was such a high anxiety, or, or continues today, I guess, in his view, to be such a high anxiety about the end of the world, about ecological destruction, about financial collapse and war and all these things, that our society feels like it has a time limit on it, is because of the presence of this near object later in time. That as it unfolds, we feel the existential tension of this object. Um, I would say, though, that the object isn't something that's necessarily good or bad. It just it just is. It's just something that's completely changing the landscape for what it is. So McKenna also thought that this object was actually attracting history toward it. So he would describe it, um, another analogy that he used that I think is pretty interesting and powerful was that he described the object almost like if you were looking at a disco ball in a bar and the disco ball is rotating and as it rotates you see light coming off of the ball and as this ball turns you could we could use the metaphor that each point of light that you see if you were to distill it and keep it and actually observe it you would see all of time throughout it swirling around that the image of itself was uh was manifesting in many different forms so that everything from ideologies technology culture gurus um religion theologies uh political structures empires kingdoms all this stuff you know uh individual people that it was like you could see a hint of light coming off of this object in time and as it spun it created this thing called history behind it and that our entire evolution was just manifesting in the essence of this thing's presence now, I feel like the only place where I really disagree with McKenna is that he put an end date that it was so solid where he extrapolated that 2012 end date. And clearly, uh, 2012 wasn't the day when there was some type of massive transformation or anything like that, even though it uh, flowed with the dynamics of the Mayan calendar and all that stuff. And yeah, there's some I mean, there's some weirdness there. There's some interesting things going on with all that. I, I mean, personally, I don't know if, you know, perhaps 2012 was a date where there was some type of change, some type of astrological change, some type of change in culture. If there was a discovery, I mean, I'd really have to go look back and look at that. The only thing that I've actually I've played with in my head that I said, oh, that's kind of interesting that 2012 did have uh, one monumental discovery that just comes to mind easily is uh, the discovery of the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. And mind you, that was a huge monumental discovery. It was uh, another part of the standard model, a, a understanding and completion of the standard model, or perhaps not a, a total completion, but definitely completed a whole area where we understood where other particles are receiving their mass from, from this thing called the Higgs field. So, of course, that was obviously something monumental in science and physics. Uh, but I don't know if that's really things like that or what McKenna was seeing, where was there was novelty theory trying to anticipate that? Did it understand that certain something like that was in 2012? Or perhaps novelty theory wasn't uh, completely correct. I don't think novelty theory was completely correct. I think 
I think it has something true about it. The same way that even McKenna said, um, I think even if it's not true, it contended with other scientific theory in trying to understand time as an object. And time is a more concrete thing than just something in your head or or a system of causalities between each other. He tried to actually make time like a a law that um, was merged with the law of novelty. So I don't know if McKenna, or and mind you, McKenna did also have his time wave theory um, assessed by different mathematicians. A good friend of his, Ralph Abraham, also looked at the theory heavily. And he had a couple of people helping him on that theory. So it wasn't him alone who was actually creating a theory. He had some good people on the job. But I think that perhaps, yes, McKenna did see something true about reality in, in the way that time manifest itself and the way that events manifest themselves here on the planet and in the cosmos but i don't think novelty theory or time wave zero was the end-all be-all theory of time but then again i'm not entirely sure maybe they'll maybe you know someone will do mckenna good and somewhere in the future someone will pull up the theory and say wow there's actually something really great in here but uh on some level i think philosophically it's a valid theory personally i do believe that there is some type of meaning that we're knitting together for the human story, for the enterprise of the subject. So please, you know, go and support, go educate yourself with them, open your minds, expand your consciousness. And uh, yeah, guys, I hope you really enjoyed this. Uh, so today we talked about the transcendental object. I'm going to have something out for you guys soon again. Um, some, I got some ideas cooking up right now. Uh, so yeah, this has been Tyler with Talk Alchemy. You can find us at talkalchemy.com as well as on our social media, uh, Talk Alchemy on Instagram, as well as on Twitter, which is also Talk Alchemy. Uh, so yeah, guys, I'll have all that linked in the description. Uh, if you want to message me or you know have any thoughts or comments, please like drop me a line. I would love to hear from you guys. It's just wonderful to be able to talk to you guys. I really hope you guys enjoyed this a lot. You guys have a great day. Infinite blessings, everybody. Uh, stay safe and uh, be good to each other. See you guys.